Welcome to episode 293. When you feel a craving come on, do you find a way to do mental gymnastics so that you can end up giving yourself permission to eat the chocolate or the bag of potato chips or the garlic bread or the wine? I'm guessing you're nodding because finding ways to manipulate yourself into eating and binging is unique to the human experience. You don't see spiders and lions saying, I'll have it. All right, no, I won't. No, I'm going to have it. No, I won't have it. They just do what's good for them. In theory, so should we. But it's funny how on Sunday morning with a hangover, we've decided to get our shit together and lose weight. But how on Wednesday night, we've found a way to not care about that goal yet again. On today's episode, we discuss the power of self-justification and identity in trying to change your sugar behavior and how you can stop lying to yourself to instead help yourself make a bit more progress down this road of being in control of what goes in your mouth. So, let's dive in. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? You are back here on the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast with me nestled in your ears, ready for me to whisper sweet nothings about health and wellness. Now, your weird kinks aside, in 2023, it's my mission to coach 500 people to stop the binge eating and savage self-talk cycle so they can lose weight whilst feeling in control and without restriction along the way. And arguably, the biggest component of this battle with, that we have with sugar and why emotional eating is a problem at all is because of this glucose substance that ends up in our blood that seems to terrorize every social situation that we get ourselves into and sabotage any attempt that we make to get healthy. It's arguably as well why the yo-yo diet cycle exists too because of that desire for sugar when we get off the bandwagon at the other end. And so on today's podcast, what we're going to be talking about is old mate sugar and all the struggles that that comes with. And to chat with me about that is Dr. Andrea Grayson, who is a behavior change communications consultant who teaches about public health communication in the Masters of Public Health degree at Lana College of Medicine at the University of Vermont. She's also the author of The Sweet Tooth Dilemma, much of which our chat is going to be centered around today. So if you have any struggles with sugar, this conversation is going to be one that you need to listen to. Andrea, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Really happy to be here, Maddie. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm happy to have you here. But the interesting thing is normally we'd expect medical doctors and nutritionists to be having a chat about this. So firstly, I want to know what is a behavior change communications consultant? Um, it is the methodology of public health communications. So every effective public health message whether it's use your safety belt when you're driving or get your mammogram when you're 50 or whatever the public health, wear a mask. Ideally, they're using a methodology that involves researching the language and understanding of the point of view of the target audience, uses their language and engages them in creating messages that will be effective. It tests the messages. So it's the methodology that's used in public health communications. And I sometimes summarize it as using all the tools and techniques of commercial marketing, but tries to inspire better behavior. Yeah. As you were speaking then, I was thinking that it sounds like a really technical name for the marketing department. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> 
But what what we really noticed um, in the pandemic, for example, is how to understand where people are coming from, because people didn't get vaccines, for example, for a lot of different reasons. And if you tried to talk to somebody about getting a vaccine with a message that didn't relate to them, you would get nowhere. So Mm -hmm. it really, and the same thing in our work, um, one of the first things we learn as health coaches is to get on the map of the person you're talking to, understand where they're coming from. Because if you're talking out here somewhere and they're over here somewhere, you're just not going to connect the language, the understanding. Uh, So it's really, ultimately, it's about connection. Yeah. And I think actually you mentioning the pandemic is quite a useful starting point for this conversation because one of the things, especially myself being in Melbourne, one of the most locked down cities in the world, one of the things that we saw was a massive increase in the purchasing percentage of cereals and sugars and chocolates. And during that time, there were a lot of discounts and bargains by mainstream uh, grocery companies. And so a lot of people gained a lot of weight diabetes went up, all of that kind of stuff, sugar dependency. And so, you know, I think maybe that's a good entry point for us to start talking about sugar. So how did you get into the world of sugar from where you are in your world of health communication? Well, I came at it um, from a a policy and culture perspective. So I teach about public health communication and behavior change. And my interest, with I also have a background in media production and media studies, and I teach about, taught about media studies for quite some time. In 2016, I was researching a book about uh, the role of advertising in creating the food culture of convenience and how it, through so much repetition of media messages, it normalizes eating cereal for breakfast when cereal for breakfast has got to be the worst thing a child who wants to learn could eat in the morning. Absolutely. So I was deep into studying um, the role of advertising and creating this food culture that is really degrading our health. Uh, when almost by accident, I realized that I had my own sugar addiction that um, I had been in denial of 30 years. It all came down one day in the grocery store. I was doing my shop and at the end of my shop, I looked for something to eat in the car, drive home. And on this particular day, as I was reaching for the dark chocolate peanut butter cups, I heard a voice in my head say, oh, you can have that. You worked out today. And it stopped me in my tracks because my logical brain, I've been deep into studying the role of advertising and the sugar industry and their marketing tactics. Um, And so when I heard this voice, it was like, whoa, that doesn't jive with what I'm studying and what I'm learning and what I want for myself. So it stopped me in my tracks and I said, what is talking to me? And that's when I realized it was the sugar talking to me. And so I did a a pivot in what I was researching and I uh, started looking at how is it possible that sugar is talking to me biologically. And so I went from studying policy and culture to uh, biology Uh, And that's when I learned uh, one of my big lessons about um, sugar dependency is that there's good bacteria and bad bacteria in the gut and the good bacteria feed on fiber and the bad bacteria feed on sugar and flour. And when those bad bacteria need to be fed, they will say, they send a message up the vagus nerve, it comes out your thoughts and they'll say anything. I'm getting in the car and going to get that ice cream now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I already had, uh, I already had lunch, but I feel like a snack now. Or it'll say anything. And so that was my 
journey into unwinding my own sugar addiction. And, you know, many people who listen to your show probably know they have a problem or they think they have a problem, but I was in denial of my problem. I thought I worked out, I managed my weight, so I must be fine. But the whole time there was this underlying um, dependency that I was completely unaware of. Yeah, it's interesting that we associate um, obesity with sugar challenges, but there's plenty of people and arguably my family line is one of them because all of the Lansdowne men in my family have had some kind of major health problem, but we're all skinny. We're all skinny. Um, So (laughs) uh, as a result of those health problems, it's highly likely in my opinion and from what I know of their personal health stories that their diet, whether it's too much alcohol or whether it be too much sugar or, you know, refined carbohydrates is absolutely a result of that. And yeah, it's so easy for us to tie the narrative of, oh, I'm not overweight, so my diet must be fine. Um, And I think in many cases that is a very inaccurate summation. Absolutely. One of the my favorite phrases is you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. <laughs> There's another version of that, which is you can't outrun your fork. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> <laughs> so with the communications aspect of what you do, I'm curious. So you, obviously mm. in your role and, and what you do, it's about educating the public on changing their behavior. But you kind of had this moment. It was reminded me of a movie in the sense that it's like you were the undercover agent that got sucked into the underworld and you're like, you couldn't get out. It's, and you caught yourself <laughs> being like, I'm studying this stuff, but oh my God, I am this stuff. Um, and so I'm curious how the idea or the skill set that you have with communication becomes useful to navigate your internal dialogue and your internal messaging and your internal marketing about ideas that you have about sugar, but also to adopt new ideas for behavior change. How does that differ? Excellent question and definitely go down many different threads there. Um, I think because I'm an educator and create curriculum and teach about theories of behavior change, I knew once I realized that I had a, a sugar addiction, I knew I would figure it out and I knew I would help other people do it too. And I was relatively fit. I was relatively trim and healthy when the realization hit me that it was concealing me. And I realized that there were layers and layers of deceit involved and how the mind is involved in all sorts of justifications. It's not just I worked out today, but it's I finished cleaning the house. Um, I go to the gym. Yeah, I went to the gym. But then those are all the justifications. But then there's a whole other layer of mental thoughts around. It's not that important to me. I can just do it this time and I'll start again tomorrow. <laughs> I think we've all done that one. Yeah, I know. Like, I'll just deal with this later. <laughs> but what I did was I started trying to understand where all those thoughts were coming from. And what mm-hmm. I realized is that there are a whole bunch of different mechanisms that are involved. Like gut bacteria is one mechanism, but I came up with five different pathways of dependency. The most obvious one is dopamine and the pleasure pathway. The beautiful thing about dopamine is that uh, not only do we get a hit of pleasure from having sugar and flour, it includes the motivation to go get it. So like, oh, I could use a cupcake. Let's get in the car and go get it. And all that time you're getting dopamine with the anticipation of getting it. So it's not only the pleasure that we anticipate, it's the motivation to go get it. The next pathway is uh, the insulin pathway, which you've talked a lot about. 
And that pathway comes with the energy roller coaster of yeah. insulin paralleling the blood sugar spikes and then having a low and then needing to do it again and to do it again. Uh, so the energy pathway um, has to do with the hormones of insulin. And then the third physiological pathway is that gut bacteria, which we talked about. And then there are uh, two sort of emotional and social pathways. The emotional pathway, which I also include boredom and stress. Yep. Um, I can't tell you how many times I, I would go down to the kitchen and open the cupboard to just not do whatever I had to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so a chief procrastination tool is snacking and also stress eating, which you've also talked about, and that includes emotional eating in general. And then the last pathway is uh, social rituals and habits, particularly around family traditions. Uh, we have the holiday season coming up. You know, every family has its pushers. <laughs> and that might even be you listening. <laughs> <laughs> the feeders. <laughs> the person who always makes the brownies, the person who always makes the cake, who always makes the pie that everybody raves about. And so when you talk about giving up sugar and flour, that's a huge part of your identity that needs to be addressed because we've, we've interwoven the emotional feelings of love and belonging to the tribe with the food. And so when you start detangling that, people in the tribe can get uh, defensive. Oh, what's wrong? You don't like this anymore? Or why? Is, are you not eating sugar because it's bad? Does that mean I'm bad? Or like, come on, just have a cookie. It's not going to kill you. It can get hard in family situations sometimes to try and carve out your territory. So part of what I teach and help people with how to talk about what you're trying to do without making people defensive and alienating them and just honor yourself in the process. Yeah, it's interesting how embedded identity attachment to food. Um, and it's wild that in less than 100 years, we probably went thousands and thousands and thousands of years not being emotionally attached or having an identity piece about <laughs> food. And then in the last sort of 70, you know, we've had all of this sugar marketing and advertising and culture development in the Western world around a lot of these traditions which have particular types of food. But now I think it's not even just the major family events. People have identity about the kind of thing that they get at morning tea at their work. You know, it's like, oh, you know, yeah. Gary always gets a Diet Coke and a muffin. Like that's his daily ritual. And we've got these rituals built into the yeah. whole day. And Gary also on the way home gets a hot dog while he's waiting for the train, you know. And it's all of these tiny little things obviously don't become so tiny eventually because we do them every day for however long. Then we also add in the big family holiday events as well on top of all of these tiny little daily sugar rituals. And so it's, it's no wonder, I think, that we're in this sort of the real pandemic, which is probably, you know, people battling with sugar, being overweight, having diabetes and all of the other metabolic consequences that come from consuming those kinds of foods, but fundamentally having an identity that drives and justifies those behaviors on a day-to-day -day basis. Absolutely. Um, the identity piece, as you said, people, I think the identity piece partially comes from likes and dislikes mm -hmm. that people create, um, build their identity out of, I like these donuts and I don't like those donuts. And that somehow it feeds the dopamine and it feeds the identity in a way that I don't think we had before, you know, before the past 70 years, say. Mm -hmm. And it yeah. also isn't often talked about in the sugar addiction 
flower addiction world is the sense of loss and the sense of dis- not disappointment, more like, um, yeah, just loss. Like, wow, this, this was a really big part of me and I need to learn how to let that go. Mm. Like a grief process that needs to be initiated. Yes. And if you don't fill it with something else, there's going to be a void. And so, you know, one of the lessons of, uh, I don't have kids, but um, I've observed them quite a bit. And if you want to take the toy truck away from Johnny, you better have an airplane ready because they're (laughs) just going to, if you take it away and there's nothing to take, fill up their attention, they're going to have a fit, right? There's a void of what occupied them and gave them pleasure. So uh, one of the things that I advocate for is people uh, really cultivating other forms of pleasure very deliberately so that they're not left with this dopamine void, this identity void that they can start cultivating new parts of their identity. And actually, I would challenge your listeners now uh, to think of five things that are non-food that give them pleasure that they can do today. I like that. And some of the things like taking a bath, you want to wait till the weekend or, you know, something you could do today, but it's something that you have control over and that you can do to bring yourself pleasure. And I think that's a really important part of not feeling this wave of deprivation that can come when you give up all these things that you're attached to. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think as well, the the sense of loss is real because we've conditioned ourselves to one have it there as an emotional support. We eat it when we're lonely. We eat it when we want to procrastinate. We eat it when we're bored, when we're stressed. And so it's the course of our life. It's weeded its way into all of these emotional nooks and crannies that exist in our life. But the other thing is the keeping busy. Um, And what I mean by that is like the oral fixation on always having something going in our mouth or our stomach and never feeling hungry. And so we've got, there's also this fixation on almost, you could argue like an ADD, ADHD kind of tendency to always be moving in pursuit of food, swinging on the cupboard, swinging on the door of the fridge, opening the Uber app, preparing food to be where you want it to be, or walking down to the cafe, and then the actual eating of it, which is obviously, you know, your hands putting it in your mouth. And there's this constant physical movement that's always going on. We're either moving towards the next 
snack or the next meal or and we're putting it in our face and so I think there's also that physically trained element that's kind of like the monkey brain which is like I'm on autopilot physically as well not just emotionally Absolutely. The physical habits, I think, are huge. That's why it's really important to give the brain something else to do. Yeah. Create new habits. So it took me two years to feel like I had a safe relationship with sugar once I started cycling through these no added sugar challenges. Mm -hmm. Because it takes a while. Like I would go for a while and then I would backslide and then I would go for a while and backslide. But each time it was less deep and less long. And so it took a little while. But there would be times when I would just get up and automatically find myself standing in front of the cupboard, standing in front of the fridge, looking at the fridge like, why am I here? I'm here because on autopilot, I just walked to the fridge. Um, so in times like that, I would try and distract myself, say I would try and catch myself earlier. And so as I'm getting up from the desk, going to the fridge, I would say, OK, I'm going to the fridge. I'll do 10 pushups instead like derail my thinking so that I would get off that automatic pilot. That's not always a practical thing. If you're in an office, you can't always get down and do your squats and push-ups. Um, but finding maybe it's walking the stairs or do a lot instead of going to the kitchen, just walk by the kitchen and walk a lap around the office. Um, yeah. You know, we can start training our brain or build on those automatic behaviors to create some more healthier behaviors. Yeah, I completely agree probably similar to yourself in my education stuff and my programs, there's a big component around rewiring those habits because I think one of the the failures of modern diet programs is that they neglect the idea that you willpower is enough. Um, and it's not enough because if you've got someone that's in front of you that hasn't had more than six hours sleep in three years, has two kids under five, um, also has a job and is stressed about money, uh, willpower runs out <laughs> really quickly. And so if we don't actually fill the void with something that the sugar previously nurtured, there was a function of the sugar, right? It was either nurturing someone's stress or their boredom or their procrastination or their maybe they're recently divorced and you know it's filling the void of love at that standpoint if we just go just be strong you'll be fine it's going to fall apart because the sugar served a purpose and so we have to fill that void with another purposeful thing to support that situation because otherwise we all relapse if we don't fill the void with a tool that actually has utility that's right absolutely a lot of people have times specific triggers after dinner sweets or three o'clock sweets or the 11 o'clock donut with second cup of coffee or whatever. A lot of people have time specific things. And one of the strategies that I work on with people is don't expect to get to that moment and not have a plan. <laughs> like yeah. if you're going to try and get to three o'clock when you always have a donut and you don't have a plan, you're just, all you have is willpower. And that we know is a limited resource. Especially at that time of the day. Yeah, that after the lunch slump. Um, so I suggest that people not wait until they get to three o'clock at 10 to three. When you usually go to the kitchen, get up and go outside, go for a walk, do something else. So you're not at your desk or not in the kitchen at three o'clock. So you've already started a pattern interrupt in your brain. I'm not where I usually am. I'm doing something else. So that helps um, create a new neural path already. And then to have an alternative already planned at three o'clock, I'm going to have an apple and peanut butter or an apple and cheese. And that's going to be my reward for walking around the block at three o'clock. Mm -hmm. So 
having not getting to the moment where you're having a battle of willpower and having a substitute that is also a reward can really start help reinforcing new behaviors. I'm curious because often when we get to that time of the day, 3 p.m. in the afternoon or after dinner particularly, willpower is low, we're tired, we're stressed, um, and obviously we need a plan. But sometimes even the plan isn't very appealing because we're like, oh, why would I want to do that? I'm tired. And so we come up with all of these ways to justify our choices. Um, And it's funny that we're having this conversation today because I had a conversation with someone in my inner circle yesterday who was in duality of doing two things at once, which was telling me about her desire to do something with sugar so that she didn't do it, but equally told me that confessing to me took all the pressure off so that she also was now able to go and do it because she'd admitted it to somebody. There's some multi-level <laughs> justification right there. And maybe that's an insight. Maybe yeah. every man listening is like, welcome to dating women. But the reality <laughs> is that it's it's like, you know, this combination of justifications that we make up in our head. And I'm 100% guilty of it as well, in my experience with sugar, which is that we create a story or a narrative, which no matter the outcome still leads us to the consumption of sugar. (laughs) Which is one of the fascinating things about how sugar can talk to us and justify. It will justify and justify. It's, It's almost like the prefrontal cortex has no match for whatever primordial tendencies the sugar is pulling on like it'll mm-hmm. say anything it will do gymnastics <laughs> it sounds like your your <laughs> client uh is doing mental gymnastics justify her treats yeah it's pretty fascinating you know sometimes i'm a huge fan of tea uh licorice mint tea in particular mm-hmm. i don't know if you can get that in australia but um it's sweet licorice and sort of tangy from the mint and it's my all-purpose go-to when in doubt drink tea because now when there's, of course, traditional teas, but there's flavors of herbal teas are infinite and there's got to be some that you love, whether it's berries or citrus or, I don't know, lemon or um, vanilla or cocoa or like there are a million flavor teas. And if you let yourself get excited about it, you go to the supermarket and you stand in front of the big row of all the flavored teas and you go, hmm, what would feel good? You're going to start getting excited about it. And you're like, oh, I can't wait to try this one. And so then when you think, I'm going to have that tonight after dinner. And so you're building up this anticipation, this excitement, which is dopamine, uh, that will hopefully excite you enough to be rewarding enough. Mm -hmm. I've got a question about the tea and the flavor experience that you have with the tea. And this is mostly my curiosity is do you feel that going into the same type of experience, and what I mean is we often go towards sugar for a host of deeper emotional reasons and biological reasons, but the most obvious one to all of us is it feels good in our mouth, right? It feels good on my tongue. It tastes delicious. Mm. And so my question is, do you feel that tea, going towards tea for similar motivations, which is it tastes good, it feels good in my mouth, do you feel like that's playing with fire? That's an excellent question. Um, I think it's a pretty benign substitute, particularly when people are starting. Healthy substitutes is really important Mm -hmm. because we want to reduce the harm that people are doing. So instead of a donut, have an apple and peanut butter or an apple and cheese, something there's a a hundred different 
healthy snacks, cucumbers with hummus, you know, any number of things that you could have as a snack that would be more benign than having sugar and flour snacks. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a role for substitutes if it's perpetuating an avoidance. I don't think licorice mint tea, you're going to get the same emotional avoidance Mm -hmm. that you, the same buffering effect you're going to get from having a cupcake. Yeah, I'd agree. But ultimately, I think in people's growth, you need less and less to entertain your mind. Mm. I see a lot of this journey as a spiritual journey because the more you develop a sensitivity to how your body reacts to food and the thoughts that are causing your actions, the more space you can create to make choice and have freedom and not be jerked around by the messages you see everywhere or the emotional pulls or any of the reasons why we might turn to sugar and flour can really be replaced by a holding of space to feel the emotions, to experience a deeper sense of ourselves, to get curious about our thoughts and our emotions. And where did that come from? That, that feels like an old trigger, you know? Wow, let's journal about that today. So I think it's a, so tea, it might be a, a temporary substitute, but I don't think it's going to just zone people out the way that sugar and flour does. Yeah, I would totally agree. And, and I think the, the motivation for that question comes from the artificial sweetener industry. And what I mean by that is that we're often told, and it goes back to this conventional dieting idea, and I think things are starting to change broadly speaking, but is the idea that, um, you know, just find a healthy alternative when actually it's the behavior that is the problem. It is not necessarily the choice of food. And so we're in this situation where, and and I get this in the first few weeks of working with people, they're like, okay, Maddie, like what are the healthy alternatives? And the healthy alternative is water and air, (laughs) which is because (laughs) the cycle of your food addiction or or your consumption pattern is the fundamental problem. It's not that we have never really worked with anybody because it's not my area and, and it definitely exists, but is undernourished, that it has not enough calories, right? Um, some people that have done some of that hardcore dieting where they're only eating salads and they're not getting enough protein, sure, there's some people there undernourished, but generally most people are getting absolute ton of calories into their body. And so I often think that, yeah, when we've got these artificial sweeteners or healthy alternatives or the health aisle at the supermarket, it's really just mutton dressed as lamb in that situation. I, I totally agree. And I was certainly duped by eating gluten-free chocolate chip cookies for years, thinking I was doing something good for myself. <laughs> yeah. And well, it's that marketing, uh, right? That public communication of what yeah. gluten-free means. And gluten-free has a very good reputation for being the healthy alternative, when a lot of the times there's nothing healthy about it. <laughs> it's potato starch and tapioca flour and it might be, it serves its purpose uh, for people who are are really gluten sensitive or celiac. Uh, I have a gluten sensitivity. I thought, ooh, they made this for me. I'm going to have this, uh, this chocolate, gluten-free chocolate chip cookie. And of course, I would eat half of it or more, but I was a binger. So I would buy the package of cookies with the intention of eating it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can relate. I can relate. So, I totally agree with what you're saying about... Um, it's the the behavior itself that needs to be rewired. Um, I tend to take a, a little bit of a baby step approach by baby stepping with harm reduction. It's a journey. It takes a couple of years. Well, it took me a couple of years to unwind my sugar addiction. And 
I would focus on harm reduction. So when I felt a train wreck coming on, instead of buying cookies, I would buy a watermelon Mm -hmm. and eat as much of the watermelon as I possibly could and feel like I dodged a bullet because I didn't buy the package of cookies. For sure. You know, eventually that wore thin and wore out and I don't do that anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was a baby step for me to upgrade my, my binges so that I wasn't doing so much harm. Yeah, I take a similar approach in the sense that, yeah, we can't change everything overnight because then you have an identity crisis, which leads you to want to crave the former identity, right? And so you go back to exactly who you were before. And I think the other thing that comes with the area of conversation talking about um, healthy alternatives is that the idea that, well, I still deserve to be treated. I still deserve to have the drink or the food or whatever. And this, this idea and this narrative of, well, I deserve it. You know, I've earned it. Um, we've got this kind of self-righteous approach to giving ourselves permission to food, which is really just another manipulative justification strategy that we all use in order to say that it's okay. But I think in that world of I deserve and pleasure seeking is that when we've neglected to realize that in 2023, We have been so cultivated, our culture has been changed so much to be a deeply pleasure-seeking, you know, vehicle human experience that actually that's also the thing that needs to be pulled back because whether it be checking your phone every 10 seconds or whether it be, you know, eating, you know, every hour, which is way too often, whatever it is, you know, all of the advertising, the marketing, the TV shows, the Netflix series, the next upgrade on social media so that you can get a three-second video to watch instead of a 10-second video to watch. All of it is just driving us to burn out our dopamine receptors, our serotonin uptake stuff. Like our brains are becoming so dysfunctional that, you know, we find ways to justify our food behavior because it just perpetuates this hyper dopamine addiction that we're on sort of roundabout or that course or that track is getting shorter and shorter and shorter with access to food, the access to social media, the access to um, porn is another major contributor to that world as well. And it comes back to things like meditation, yoga, breath work is learning to create more space between one dopamine experience and the next. Yes, totally agree 100%. Yeah, it's a a messed up world we've created. (laughs) Yeah, we don't teach about dopamine overexposure, <laughs> you know. Well, we don't teach about nutrition in schools to begin with. We make rules around phones, but we don't explain to kids about what they give their attention to. And one of the things about phones, which are really, really complicated now, they've children's brains, young people's brains have grown up in relationship to this object. Their social lives are intertwined with this object. And so say, take a digital holiday is to basically cut them off from the world in a way that you and I didn't grow up with it in the same way. Our brains developed outside or playing with other kids or doing other things. It wasn't so our brains didn't develop tied around this digital device. So I don't know what it means for the future of humanity that we can't have a social life without electricity <laughs> or without uh, Wi-Fi. Um, yeah. But it certainly makes us all the more interdependent on overconsumption. Oh, absolutely. And that increases 
the exposure to marketing and advertising for those kids because every single app, every single you know company has advertising deals. If social media is free, then you are the commodity. Um, any app that you use, if it's free, you are the commodity. And the way that those companies earn money is by advertisers getting stuff in front of your eyes. And arguably, we're all just big kids, but probably kids are the most susceptible to being brainwashed about mm-hmm. you know, what they should have for breakfast or what cool kids do at recess at school these days, all governed around food. Even when I was a teenager, sure, we weren't, it wasn't until late high school that phones were really coming in, but most of lunchtime was centered around the canteen where all the cool kids got to bring money and I brought my mum's homemade food, which I thought was the worst social crime I could have committed at the time. Um, now, <laughs> I would love my mum to be making all my food. That would be fantastic with stuff out of the garden. But even then, you know, lunchtime was still centered around who is cool enough to have access to the sugary foods. Amazing. Yeah, as a status thing. Uh, yeah, I don't know why homemade food is so uncool in elementary grades. There's really no choice, but in the high school grades, I don't know why your home cooked food is not cool. I know. It tastes so good. I don't know why that happened, but we have that too. Yeah, it's so bizarre. So, um, for everybody listening, Andrea, where can they find you online? The easiest place is createchangelab.com. That's where information about my programs, my book, um, the Sweet Freedom Society, lots of free resources to download. Uh, every that's ground zero for all my stuff and uh on social media at rechange lab on instagram and superb i will put all of those links down in the show notes below so if you're listening and you think this is a cool conversation and you want more of andrea's world please go down to the show notes and click the links and get amongst it it's uh obviously going to be lots of Lots of good content and more of what we've talked about here today. And if you know anyone that's got challenges with sugar or difficulties with their relationships or you just need to start a conversation with somebody, please use this episode, send it to them um, and blame me for any backlash that you get for judging them for their sugar consumption. (laughs) Um, Andrea, I'm really appreciative of your time and your energy and everything that you've shared here today and everything you've created because I think um, sugar is one of the biggest challenges that the world faces these days in regards to health and everything that it's doing to kids' brains and adults' bodies and both and vice versa. Um, So of all the stuff that you've learned uh, in your career and your journey, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? That I wish more people knew about, um, aside from sugar, um, which is the biggest thing for me right now, um, I would say personal honesty. Oh, I love that. Because there are so many veils of deceit um, that are created by marketing and and our our culture broad and small that i think uh, if people could get quiet and really feel their feelings and see their thoughts and decide which thoughts they want to keep and which thoughts they don't want to keep they would be less deceived by all the marketing they would be empowered to choose and um i think choice, personal choice through personal honesty is probably our greatest weapon against uh, the onslaught of food marketing. Thank you. I really, really resonate with that. And I totally agree. So 
I think that's powerful. So thank you for sharing. But um, thank you for being here. Uh, I appreciate your time and your energy, as I said before, and hopefully we can get you back soon for another episode. Great to be here, Maddie. Thanks for a great conversation. So welcome. See you later. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.